0: From the National Race and Capitalism Project,
1: welcome to season four of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and
0: capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Welcome to the panel webinar, actually, on anti-Black violence, the ongoing fight for freedom. This event is brought to you by the Race and Capitalism Project in the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago. My name is Megan Ming Francis. I'm co director of the Racing Capitalism Project along with Michael Dawson. Joining me today are Juliet Hooker, Barbara Ramsby, and Vesla Weaver. I'm really super excited about this conversation. These are three scholars that I have learned so much from, and I'm grateful to be having this convening even while being like socially distanced and distant and online. And then to our audience, thank you so much for spending some time and being a part of this important conversation i do want to let our audience members know that this event is going to be recorded um, and you can view it later all right so let's go on with introductions so juliet hooker is a professor of political science at brown she specializes in racial justice multiculturalism latin american political thought black political thought and afro-descendant and indigenous politics in latin america Professor Hooker is the author of Race and the Politics of Solidarity and Theorizing Race in the Americas. Her current research project examines the politics of loss. One feature of that is about monuments, which I know has been in the the news a lot recently. One project, an article from that, is called Black Lives Matter and the Paradoxes of U.S. Black Politics from Democratic Sacrifice to Democratic Repair. And I highlight this in part because it's an article that I often go back to, I often assign it, um, especially it has helped me to understand the unequal democratic sacrifice we ask of black people in this country. So please go out and read that. Barbara Ransby is distinguished professor in the Department of African American Studies, Gender and Women's Studies and History at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she directs the campus wide social justice initiative, a project that promotes connections between academics and community organizers doing work on social justice. Professor Ransby is the author of the multiple award-winning book, Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, A Radical Democratic Vision. Um, And I really, this is one of many books that she has written. I assign it. I assigned part of it this year to my students at Kennedy School, um, and I assigned the full book um, to my graduate students. So make sure to read that. Uh, Professor Ransby is not only a historian and a writer, but a longtime activist working closely with the movement for Black lives and the multiracial coalition, The Rising Majority. Bachelor Weaver is the Bloomberg Distinguished Associate Professor of Political Science and Sociology at Johns Hopkins University. Her research aims to better understand the causes and consequences of racial inequality in the United States, how state policies and institutions shape political life and identity, and especially the effects of increasing punishment and surveillance in America on democratic inclusion. Professor Weaver has written Arresting Citizenship, The Democratic Consequences of American Crime Control, and many brilliant articles that have been instrumental in shining a light on the relationship between the carceral state policing and black citizens in this country. Um, She is part of a group of scholars on the project called The Portals. um, And there is just so many interesting articles that have come out, especially this past year. And I assign all of these. So um, you guys can understand why I'm very excited about the panel that we have today. We'll be posting links to these scholars works later on the Race and Capitalism website. All right so before we get into the first question i just really just very 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 quickly want to kind of set the stage about where we are right now in this historic moment in our political and legal system and so what we have right are the convergence of many different factors and issues so we have of course the white supremacists right in the white house we have of course covid and the resulting pandemic which has laid clear huge structural and health inequalities in this country and then the Before that, through that, and then after that, of course, we have had state violence and white vigilante violence and the killing of Black people. And through this all, we have had protests. The most biggest, apparently, uh, number of scholars are focusing on this right now. Perhaps the biggest um, mass movement um, since the civil rights um, movement in the heyday in the 60s, largest in history. And then, of course, we have the upcoming election in November. And it's clear, one of the things that has been made clear in a way that at least it's been made clear in a way that it has not been made clear in my lifetime is the violence, the the big dramatic and clear violence of institutions and of the state and of people as well as the polite violence of institutions, many of the many of these kind of the polite violence in the institutions that we actually teach at. so it's it seemed in in terms for us um a, an important moment to reflect upon that violence, as well as to think about where we are going to, and to draw from the past as well as inspiration from current organizers and activists. So with that, I want to start with the first question, which is what does this moment reveal? And I'm going to just kind of just pose it that broadly and ask our panelists to comment. So I will go, what did I say, Vesla, Juliet, and then Barbara.
2: So first, just thank you, Megan, for having the vision for this event, for pulling us together in what is a very busy time, and thanks to the Race and Capitalism Project and all the people behind the scenes making sure that this posting and this conversation is happening. So the very first thought I had when you posed that question was internal to my own discipline, and that is that we keep talking about the fraying of democratic institutions. Indeed, in the run-up to this moment, you know, many ac- academics, the kind of meme of the moment was, you know, among, I should say, academics not trained to understand and to analyze and to theorize race and power, kept sounding alarms about democratic backsliding This is what American democracy is. This is how it has been operating for most of its history, with only brief exceptions. We simply can't describe and narrate and theorize American democracy and how well it's doing without its link, its durable link to racial oppression. And police power was core to that project. And so once you understand this, the idea that democracy has some sort of hardline boundary from anti-democratic governance or repressive uh, governance feels totally inappropriate. It feels totally obsolete, and it occludes how Black theoreticians of democracy have been narrating that all along. And when I say Black theoreticians of democracy, I don't mean uh, necessarily just elites. I mean, your average everyday person in the long oral history of, of uh, what uh, racial power is. And the Black counter public has long known and theorized this. Um, just before we uh, left for, to quarantine from the pandemic, I had been looking at resistance to police, looking in in black newspapers and looking at community alert patrols, um, looking at other forms of resistance to police brutality in the 1960s and 70s. And you know, this is one among many quotes that I came across. And I'll just read from it, the difference between Germany and America is that fascism developed outside the state and then seized state power. In America, the forces of fascism already reside within the state, right? This is 50, 60 years ago. And I think one scholar I would like to lift up in this conversation is Michael Hanschard's notion of racial res- regimes. And he argues that the most celebrated, long-standing democracies Had the most, had the longest and most entrenched histories of racial slavery, subjugation, police violence, imperialism, and highly unequal labor regimes. Um, And so, this idea that we should decouple anti democratic rule from democratic freedom is the falsity. And he pushes us to consider, and here I'm quoting him. Democracy itself as a first-order problem to confront, a barrier in its own right to equality. So I the first thought I had was: you know, in American democracy, the only tradition we have had is one of a formal democratic equality alongside serious exclusion, predation, and racial power, and that these actually codepended on one another. So I'll end there, but that's what I wanted to lift up in these first moments.
1: I think building on some of what Bishla nicely said, the first thing that came to mind when I thought about your question was this idea of the power protest. And that's because, you know, in, in my subfield, political science and democratic theory, democratic theorists tend to talk a lot about the importance of democratic dialogue, of civic deliberation, of these forms of, you know, engagement that are seen as the opposite often of protests and particularly of, of you know, forms of protest that t- turn violent, right? And that seem to not follow these norms of, of civil disobedience. And I think that one of the things that has been, you know, absolutely shown by what has happened in the past, you know, month, since the protests erupted in in the wake of the killing of George Floyd is that is that the movement for black lives from the the beginning right in Ferguson and beyond and because of all the organizing that has been done that there's been an enormous change it seems we don't know how durable it is but at least in the moment There's been an enormous change in public opinion in the United States in terms of particularly things happening that we would not have been able to imagine a month ago, right? This is in terms of something that you mentioned, Megan, with the, you know, the removal of Confederate symbols that had stood for decades, some for centuries, and that seemed like it would never, they would never be able to be removed. And suddenly in the space of a couple of weeks, they're gone, right? And, and those are symbolic changes, right? But we also are seeing more concrete things like cities that are now considering disinvesting in um, or reducing their investments in policing as a result of push by local activists. And I think that these changes show that, you know, the power of protests, the power of social movements to really move public opinion and therefore to force public officials to respond you know if you think about where we were in terms of think about the you know the democratic primaries right race had kind of fallen out of the conversation right it wasn't really at the center and he, and we had ended up in a position where all the leading candidates were white all the candidates of color had fallen out and race was not it was it wasn't really central to the race and then suddenly right the protests push it back onto center stage and now people in both parties are having to you know find a way to to respond so i think you know on the democratic side right it's raising questions about well how far are democratic elected officials willing to go in terms of meet the um the demands of activists And I think on the GOP side, it's raising questions about how effective their, you know, their playbook of running on white grievance is going to be this time around, right? Whether the changes in white public opinion in particular will be significant enough to really make that not not a winning strategy for them as it has been in the past. And I think the, you know, this connects to another point, which is about how do we think about democracy? And this connects to Vesla's point as well, right? That democracy is more than just elected officials and political parties. And that if we look at this moment now, and there have been these, you know, a number of these um, moments where people were talking about suffering from democracy grief, right? That the being that the Trump administration revealed to them that U.S. democracy was in disrepair. Of course, as Vechela pointed out, U.S. democracy has been in disrepair for a long time, particularly for Black and non-white citizens, and this is, right, so, you know, so this is not something new for some citizens. But the interesting thing is that now people are saying, right, that the hope for U.S. democracy to the extent that we can think about, you know, signs of, of, of revitalization, they're coming from the protests against racism and protests led by Black activists against racial injustice. But the irony of that, right, is that it is those who have received the least care and concern from their fellow citizens who are leading, you know, this moment of, if you will, revitalization of democratic politics in the United States. And I think that is, um, you know, in terms of, of, of Megan, you noted that in my, in my work, one of the things that I talk about is that we need to think about what are we asking of those citizens who are already suffering ongoing loss when we ask them to be the ones who are always forever having to you know, make democracy real or repair U.S. democracy, that that in and of itself is an ongoing loss. Um, so I'm just going to leave it at that. And
3: Megan, thank you for convening uh, us again. And, and thanks, Vesla and, and Juliet for your remarks. Uh, and, and some of what I intended to say has been said, so that leaves us more time. But let me say a few things. One is, of course, you know, this is a conjuncture of multiple crises, uh, as Megan started out. Uh, the crisis of what I would describe as bourgeois democracy, which is represented in a sense in in the presidency. Um, And I see uh, Trump's presidency as, you know, very telling about this moment of crisis of racial capitalism, where uh, we essentially see, uh, you know, incompetent, even, you know, by any standard, um, white nationalists put in place to use white nationalism I think as a strategy to save racial capitalism, that is to mobilize large numbers of white people in the service of a set of policies that um, are essentially you know, t- taking more from, from the poor and working class folks and giving more to the rich uh, de- uh, deregulation, which holds no one accountable um, and, and further pillaging the environment. Um, but it's white, white nationalism has been at the center of that. So I think also in political circles, you know, and I come to you both as a historian, as a scholar, but also, you know, a very committed activist, which is, I think, what what this moment demands of us. Um, but but uh, it's important to sort of see the ways in which the Trump presidency represents, you know, not a strength but a re- weakness in terms of ruling regimes, and so that's what I'm uh, reminded of. I think, uh, you know, the the other crisis, of course, is. A, the confrontation of state violence. Uh, the the challenge to the police is really a challenge to state authority to use a coercive hand to keep poor and working class people in control. I mean, one of the things I said in a piece I wrote recently is that this is what uh, working class struggle looks like in the 21st century. And it is a blind spot of certain sectors of the left that refuse to incorporate an analysis of white supremacy into their critique of capitalism, that does not allow them to see that. So these are not college professors and lawyers primarily. I mean, many of us marched in the streets, but people who were in the forefront uh, of, um, of, of this protest and this uprising have been uh, people who live in neighborhoods that have been abandoned, who have seen the, the ravages uh, of neoliberal policy for, uh, for decades. So, so we see the crisis of bourgeois democracy uh, the crisis of the state uh, and, and, and the coercive arm of the state. And of course the COVID pandemic revealed other crises, uh, other vulnerabilities of racial capitalism, if you will. I think it was pretty obscene, the idea that, that there were hospitals and state governments that were competing on the market for life-saving uh, ventilators. I mean, what, what kind of, you know, I mean, it makes no sense. So, but that is, that is the logic. Uh, of, of the of the economic system that we have. And so uh, so that too was exposed. And of course, Trump closed down the, the office that was doing preparedness around pandemics because he didn't see the point of paying people to sit around and do nothing. And of course, the nothing they were doing was preparing for how to keep people alive. So th- these are the crises that we all see um, unfolding and pretty unprecedented. You know, I was talking to a young uh, reporter from Washington Post, I was rushing to something. And he said, well, let me just ask you one question. I'm asking historians, is this a historic moment? I said, well, you know, you don't actually have to be a historian to know that. But, um, but yes, it is, and it is in really fundamental ways. And it represents, I think, a moment and a pivot that, that we haven't seen in a century, you know, including, including the 1960s. I can say more about that. Um, I, I, the other part of what I want to say is that um, it's it's a dangerous moment. It's it is a moment of crisis. There is no script of how it will resolve itself. But it's also a moment of um, enormous possibility. You know, I was happy to know more about Vesla's Portals project. We actually uh, have a project here that we're calling you know a, a portal project, kind of borrowing from Arundhati. Roy's beautiful quote about the pandemic as portal that is how can we flip the script on disaster capitalism and say you know this moment of enormous suffering and you know an existential crisis really in many ways how can we see this as a transition to something better a different way of doing things and so you know I've been very working very closely with the movement for black lives in fact before this um, gathering there was a press conference that announced, uh, Uh, the Breave Act, which is uh, an attempt by the Movement for Black Lives Policy Table to offer a a, a piece of legislation that goes beyond what the more centrist Democrats and the Congressional Black Caucus have put forward that is really addressing some of the underlying causes of police violence and community suffering. And I think that's really important and it represents a shift and a pivot in Black politics in that um people are no longer just satisfied with representational black politics you know just get some black folks in there and 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 have them be black uh, you know rather than actually deliver for poor and working class folks so that's an important um challenge but we also see uh, this phase of the black freedom movement reaching out very very broadly you know mo mitchell is leading the working families party we've had um, a number of uh gatherings with indigenous Organizers, as well as Latinx uh, organizers in the immigration rights movement, the United We Dream folks, and the and other organizations, have been very much uh, in sync, as well as people doing organizing around Palestine and uh, people on the front lines of uh, uh, the Palestinian uh, liberation movement. So, so it's an exciting time. Uh, people are open to. I mean, I think Vesla said earlier. You know, we've seen, or maybe I don't know which one of you said it, uh, some nuggets of brilliance. Um, you know, that we've seen changes that many of us have been pushing for and lobbying for and screaming for and demanding. So, uh, Or even even the, the trillion plus dollars of spending, money became available overnight. You know, Stephanie Kelton in this um, modern monetary theory tells us, you know, the deficit is a myth anyway. Uh, so, so money has become available, policies have changed from Minneapolis to Oakland to LA to New York, not enough. Uh, and not the transformative agenda, really, that activists have been pushing for. But there have been significant concessions and really people's minds opening up to the possibility. So, you know, so that's what I'll say to to start us off. I I just, one more, the last thing I'll say is what I find great hope in, and when I I did my last book on the movement for Black lives and interviewing a lot of young feminist, radical, queer, anti-capitalist activists and those folks have been working and struggling and, and studying and strengthening their hand for the last five years. And they are now really at the helm of what will galvanize the next phase of, of this of this movement. So I am hopeful and excited about that. Great. Thank
0: you so much. So I'm going to break from script real quick. It's Actually, a follow-up question. I'm going to go Barbara, Vechlin, and Juliet, which is, there was something that you said in your comments, Barbara, that I thought it, it's... The question that i've been getting so much is that there's something that feels different about this moment and so i was hoping that each of you could say a, kind of very quickly or a little bit about what is so different um, about this moment in the long black freedom um, movement and i do i know in terms of for all of our research one one aspect that does come out is that freedom um, and equality is never won in a certain time right that it's an always an ongoing process um, and I think that is something that a lot of people actually in this moment are like, oh, snap. <laughs> we do have to continue to struggle for freedom. Um so I was just wondering if you guys could say a little bit about what is so different um about this moment, because I think that there is something really different about this moment, and I and I want to just stay on that for for a minute.
3: Yeah, well, you know, historians say every historical moment is uh is unique. It kind of keeps us in business. But I, I think what is different about this moment, a couple of things. One is in the 60s, of course, white people participated in what we call the civil rights movement in certain, um, uh, certain aspects of it anyway. But I think it is pretty unprecedented that we have seen in the middle of a pandemic where you can contract a virus and die with police using enormous force, tear gas, rubber bullets, et cetera, um, mercilessly in many places. We're using like, hundreds of thousands of white people falling out into the streets now i'm not saying you know obviously white supremacy is not dead people have gone out for all kinds of reasons some substantive some superficial but that is that is significant and many of them taking leadership from uh black activists who called those those gatherings so what do we do with that what do we make of that i think that that is significant um and i think we also see because of the leadership that has emerged in this moment a much more holistic and I would say much more radical in the most positive sense set of demands that this is not just about uh, George Floyd. it is not just about uh, violent racist cops, and it is certainly not just about bad apples inside those police forces. It is really about indicting state power and indicting racial capitalism and If you scratch the surface of any serious activist that has been involved in this, that is what you will find as the analysis um, and that that gives it enormous strength and potential and I think you know also it, it it puts us on notice that uh, that we can expect backlash to this movement so um, so those are two things I would hold up. I think there are other things uh the, the holistic piece I think does come out of a um, a centering around radical black feminist ideas. A lot of queer and trans activists have been involved in this struggle and been giving leadership to it. Uh, we have not seen that before, certainly my generation of you know when I was when I was their age and, and in the streets. Um, we really had to fight around sexism in the most fundamental way inside the movement uh, and outside. So so that is progress. And that brings with it not just some sort of uh, liberal inclusion. What it brings with it is a set of ideas and expectations for the scope of change. Um, and so I think that's very powerful.
2: I I agree with everything that Barbara lifted up. I think the thing that feels very different to me and maybe this is a footnote to something Barbara said about you know the, the, the attack now is not against individual actors, it's against state power and police power. That does feel very important in this moment. But I also think that um, people are now linking structural violence to police power in a very real way. I mean, just yesterday, Um, There was a study in the New York Times that found that one out of every six cases um, of COVID in Chicago came, can be linked back, can be traced back to the Cook County Jail, right? To the processing, the mass processing of people for trivialities, for small things that um, shouldn't and don't in most countries lead people to be jailed. And so that's the most sort of um, visible of the linking. But I think the other ways that the linking has happened um, uh, are very much on the scene as well. Um, You know, from the fact that in many cities they had closed down a public health infrastructure that would support um, uh, communities in this crisis while they were investing serious resources into the building up of their jail systems, into the building up of of, uh, predatory probation systems. Um, And so I think for a lot of Americans, even Americans who aren't directly impacted um, by police power, those Americans that tend to to, um, not feel visited by these harms, that linking was far more evident in this moment than it ever has been. And so the frameworks that Black organizers had been developing post-Ferguson, right, around uh, uh, state predation and state power, now in the midst of this uh, you know, insecurity because of the pandemic and police you know, running onto trains to arrest people for not wearing the appropriate mask, now this is vivid, right? Now this is vivid for Americans in a way um, that it hadn't been vivid before, I think. I mean, that's my armchair uh, hypothesis. And so it does feel like we're at a new moment. We're at a a, a moment where um, we are no longer discussing police brutality as a separable thing from uh, uh, neoliberal di- disinvestment. We're no longer discussing Um, the maiming of people by police as a separable thing from the insecurities of the job market and the insecurities of living in places where uh, schools haven't been invested in, where public health infrastructure hasn't been invested in. Now your average everyday American can theorize that link for themselves and is witnessing it in real time um, vividly. Um, And so I think that 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 gives pride of place to a certain narrative and undercuts the thing we normally see in these moments, which is, oh, they're outside agitators, their grievances are fabricated, their grievances aren't uh, real, and they're not political, um, and we need to you know, hit them with, with more crackdown measures. That, in the midst of a decades-long you know, crime decline, now that falls on deaf, deaf ears.
1: So I think, you know, um, I agree with with everything that that you all have said. What I would add to that is I think that we, you know, we need to think about this moment um, in terms of the context, long term, but also short term historical context. And I think, you know, one of the things that that we're seeing is actually that, right, the, you know, Obama's election, right, um, even though that was not in any way a transformational gain for black people or people of color really, you know, energizes this kind of racist backlash. And it happens, actually, not only in the US, we see it in Latin America as well, where there is, you know, um, this mobilization of white grievance um, against perceived gains by black and indigenous people and, and um, people of color generally. And I think what we're seeing now is you know, the mobilization of this politics of white grievance and so openly has made it more difficult for people to turn around and say, right, that race doesn't matter, that we're in this, right, it's no longer possible to make these arguments about being in a post-racial moment. And so I think that sets the stage, really, for when, you know, we have the massive outpouring of um protests against police violence, that there's a backlash to the backlash, right? Um, And that this, and the combination of the, right, the reemergence of this sort of very clear, you know, white nationalist politics, politics of white grievance combined, right, with the emergence of a super visible um, black movement, black led movement for racial justice, really means that, you know, the, a set of arguments that had held sway for, you know, for decades about, you know, that the, you know, we needed to move beyond race, that race was not really important, um, really weren't, aren't possible in this moment. And I think that's why it feels different to me in in a lot of ways. And I think part of, um, the other thing that I think is, is um, you know, it's interesting to think about is to think about what what impact the fact that these protests were happening in the context of a global pandemic. What impact did that have? Um, you know, I, I'm working on a project on loss, and so one of the things that I've thought about is that um, you know there was a way in which we essentially you know we're all dealing with various forms of, of loss, you know, in our everyday lives, um, in, you know, in terms of, of, of you know, deaths of people, um, loss of human contact, all of these things, job loss, economic losses, and that in a way this, you know, this sets the context also because the, the protests reemerge, right, in this moment in which you also begin to have attention paid to the racial disparities in the effect of the pandemic and the way in which, you know, um, it's it wasn't this shared disaster in the sense that it was clearly having a greater impact um, on racialized populations. And so I think there is that. And then the other thing is that it also exposes the, the, the inability of the state, right, or the state's unwillingness to perform some of the functions that um, you know that we that we generally think the state should provide and so i think the combination of this means that we were we're in a moment where people are really um i think realizing both the limits of, of, of state power and sort of strategies of inclusion and thinking about well maybe we need to rethink some of these positions that we had about you know, what role the state has actually been been playing, for example, vis-a-vis policing, um, and thinking about whether we're actually doing the work of care, which is some of the work of the state, as opposed to whether the state has actually been, instead, doing the work of, you know, um, of, you know being punitive, right, and being this kind of carceral state. And so I think this kind of global moment, where what we needed was care, and the state showed itself to be unable to provide that, really created a crisis that
0: highlighted
1: and and made it possible for people to see um, the failures of the carceral state.
0: Um, So I'm gonna move the conversation a little bit in terms of in thinking about what does freedom require of us? And so to think of thinking in terms of responding to that very, very big question, I've been thinking a lot about the power of radical imagination to Black struggle, about the impossibility of emancipation, about the impossibility of Brown v. Board, about the impossibility of the March on Washington and federal voting rights legislation in this country. And it strikes me that so much of where we are right now is rooted in the radical imagination of Black people. So, thus, in thinking about kind of how do we organize now, how do we organize in the future, I, I wanna return. Um, to thinking about um, black radical imaginations. Um, And I'm wondering for each of our panelists, because we are like stuck with this time clock that is somehow keeping them going. um, If you could say a little bit in like one to two minutes about the role of imagination um, and the people that you focus on in your research, uh, that would be really helpful. So with that, I'm gonna go in order of Barbara, Vesela and Juliet.
3: Right. Um, well, that's such a great question because ultimately it's our ability to look out at the world as it is and to, to see something else, to see other possibilities. And, you know, that's what, that's what all, I think, good organizers have done and, and all, you know, sort of great thinkers have, have taken up that challenge. So I think of somebody like Ella Baker. Um, Ella Baker was born the, the granddaughter of formerly enslaved people. She um, grew up in the Jim Crow South. I mean, there was everything that should have restricted and constricted her imagination about what was possible in terms of freedom for Black people. And she just said, no, you know, she said, no. Uh, She said, I'm gonna fight hard. She said, anything's possible. Um, And, you know, she believed in the power of people to transform ideas, to find the courage necessary to confront power. Um, and that was her mantra throughout her life and so you know uh, you know when I say she believed anything was possible I should I should walk that back. I mean everything is not possible but but something is possible and naming what is possible for our generation in our moment um I think is is the task and so that was that was what she was about uh, and I you know I also think, you know, imagining freedom beyond our lifetimes uh, is 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 a challenge of imagination, too. I just can't see it. I just can't see what might not happen in five years or 10 years or 20 years. Uh, but the possibility of a greater margin of freedom uh, in our world, in our nation, um, et cetera, I think is. As Londa Robeson uh, was an anti-colonial activist and writer who I wrote about. Um, and of course, you know, at the moment that she she visited the continent in 1936, Black woman traveling in... Uh, you know, in colonial Africa. Uh, she did not think, and, and most people she talked with did not think uh, that they would see decolonization, right? Um, I mean, there was a, a part of them that didn't believe it, but they fought for it anyway. So the sort of, you know, uh, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. And, and they, they, they willfully, you know, fought uh, to change the world and in fact uh, did in many ways, but the work continues. So, yeah. I mean Robin Kelly's book Freedom Dreams is always great inspiration for me, you know, and talking about all the, the writers and the artists and the the folks who who said, Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. So that's what we have to hold on to.
2: So a lot of my work of late has been on thinking about the question that I started with or the provocation that we started with about um about democracy and the anti-democratic features of police authority, um, and so I've been asking a lot long before this moment: How do how do citizens living under such institutional configurations and racial regimes, to use Hanshard's term, characterize their own their democracy and their own citizenship? That's what I've been about um, for most of my career, um, and one of the arguments that I've been making is that they understand democracy and they understand the state better than those who set out its own, its, its structures and formal rule. They understand its limits. They understand their central witnesses, you could say, to its uneasy relationship to uh, control. And they possess specialized knowledge. Um, they see, inclusion at the top and predation and expendability at the bottom, even while people in our field begins and ends from the perspective of those who for whom domination is not a core concern. And and once you recognize that their knowledge has been discounted, um, and then you seek to listen, and you listen to the radical imagination, you listen to the ideas and freedom dreams, and aspirations of what things could look like. And once you turn to their theorization um, and narration of democracy as lived, you begin to see that they call up questions and predominant frameworks of pluralism and liberalism and procedural justice. And um, and they often show us what a new vision could look like. And I wanted to, um, read just a, a little excerpt from this portal's work with Gwen Prouse, And this is a conversation between two people. These conversations took place in the aftermath of, of um, the Freddie Gray protests and, and Ferguson from about 2016 to 2018. And, um, and this is a conversation between Chicago and Los Angeles. And, and notice that they are going back and forth between thinking about Black Panther, the movie and Wakanda and the possibilities they see and the actual Black Panther Party um, and the actual experience of of policing and wealth stripping here in, in the United States. And Chicago says, okay, so we understand that without police, there would be no criminals. And Los Angeles says there will be a killmonger making sure that, that Sharif, the protectorate of the tribe of the village, is we wouldn't need to police ourselves with violence because we would police ourselves with love and compassion because that's, and Chicago says, that's key right there. That's definitely key right there, right? So we wouldn't need, you see, we would need, we would, we need the police now because we are in need, but we wouldn't be in need. They don't really need police. They don't really do nothing. We understand, we understand our excellence begets prosperity. So if you build excellence, you build prosperity. You don't build disparity. You don't build need. You build abundance and wealth. In all of these things, there's no need for police to tell me where my wealth should be spent or how my abundance should be measured. Killmonger was giving everyone free access to resources to manage their reality. Now how they would go about doing it is up to them. Okay, okay, and, his, and Chicago says, okay, so you just said free access to resources. So what if we just throw away the whole policing system and we start like actually training people how to police their own cells and their own neighborhoods, you know, like the Black Panthers were actually doing like back in the day and stuff like that, instead of having like this whole different entity Absolutely agree, autonomous control of your cultural product. That's what Wakanda is, autonomous control of its cultural product. See, it's also showing us this pathway of excellence where you can have self-determination, self-reliance, self-defense, and autonomous control of your resources. People are missing the boat because they're afraid of revolution, because they don't know what it looks like. They don't know what freedom looks like. That's why it looks like a superhero freedom has to look like a superhero for it to be like this extraordinary attempt in life to succeed. So notice what they're doing. They're deploying their radical imagination through the reading of Black Panther the movie to think about their own communities and what what policing would look like or whether there's even a need for police in a situation of of, um, where safety deprivation and wealth stripping and being in need was not their context so anyway i i when you asked about black radical imagination i kept coming back to the fact that in these dialogues um that imagination long before uh police abolition and defund the police initiatives were in mainstream uh conversations they're already theorizing this they're already saying we can do um, we can con- control we can control police. We can uh, protect our own. Um, so thank you.
1: You all have been talking about, you know how um, the imaginations of, of those who are not the dominant are are formed. And I've actually, in my own work been thinking actually about how the imagination of dominant groups is formed, right? How do we Form oppressive imaginations that rely on domination of other people, and and some of that work led me to to think about monuments and memorials, and particularly about you know the fact that you know when you look at the United States and you look and this is true of the Americas as a whole, we have a whole lot of racist memorials. We don't have many anti-racist memorials, right? We have a lot of monuments to racists. We honor their legacy there are very few monuments to that actually are actively honoring struggles against um racism and this is something and and here i'm not even talking about um you know uh you know if you look at the the landscape um i think it's still the case that only about um, less than 5% of the um, public monuments in the United States um, depict African-Americans. And most of those are built after, ni- in the, after the 1960s, since, since the 1960s. And so, and this isn't even just about a question of representation, right? That we represent the body politic um, and the body of the citizen is white um, when it's not. But it's also about the fact that we, we don't actually foster um, or create monument you know, landscapes that tell us that we should engage in anti-racism and that this is something that we should, you know, honor. Instead, we honor these folks who, who were exactly the opposite. And of course, this is the, you know, things like Confederate monuments, for example, which are the most, um, clear example of these of racist monuments in the United States um, have been challenged since they were put up by black people um, and can you know and are now being brought down and you know white public opinion has shifted to come around to seeing them apparently as as racist now um, but the interesting thing is you know I've been writing about um, um, you know the, the, Le- the monument to Robert E. Lee in Richmond the one that you know, has had all the graffiti and, and, um, you know, the images of George Floyd projected on it and, um, and Richmond at, um, on Monument Avenue. And in 1890, when that monument went up, and it was a celebration of white supremacy, it was literally a celebration of the defeat of reconstruction and the re, um, you know, reentrenchment of white rule and white domination in the South. And the editor of uh, the Richmond Planet, which is an African-American newspaper in the city at the time wrote this editorial in which he said, you know, um, black folks were here um, and put up the, the monument because they literally were some of the labor that um, um, was used to, to raise this enormous equestrian statue. And he says, and when the time comes, they'll be here to take it down. And I think this is an example, right, of particular of this, you know, this counter, you know, imagination, this anti-racist imagination that is still there and is able to contest the lessons that we're trying that we're trying to be imp- imparted by dominant the dominant national memory, and so. Um, You know, I think of this moment as a moment in which that vision, you know, from 1890s, perhaps coming true as protesters are bringing down these statues, but also that it's seeding new and and radical and different imaginations that, you know, um, will make other changes possible, hopefully, in the future.
3: Yeah, one thing I thought uh, that I wanted to say about this as well, I mean, of course, you know, appreciating all that's been shared. But one of the things I think is important in this moment, too, about the radical imagination is like we are so used to protest and resistance movements that articulate, you know, with eloquence and determination what we are against. And sometimes we don't uh, leave room for what we're for. And sometimes what we're for is, you know, it's a dream, it's an idea, it's ill defined. But what I appreciate and I'm optimistic about in this moment is that there's actual work in creating alternatives. There's a growing uh, black co op movement uh, and food justice. Uh, community that has been uh, doing public land trust and building cooperatives and solidarity economies. There's a the restorative justice uh, movement that is very elaborate about holding people accountable without using police, doing mediation, doing interventions, etc. cetera. So pe- it, it's sort of the dress rehearsal for how we can function in a different way. And that is as important as abolishing and bringing down the oppressive structures that exist. So, so it's dreaming and doing that aren't juxtaposed.
0: Oh, I love that. Um, that's going to segue into this next question.
3: It's been clear that what we
0: have right now doesn't work well. Um, and so what is needed for repair? Um, what is something or different projects um, that could transform the present and could meaningfully contribute to power and capacity building for Black people? And I think that what's been really interesting and exciting about this moment right here is about the number of different projects. Um, that people have been engaged in. Um, I wanna be cognizant of time, and so I'm gonna, be, uh, I'm, I'm gonna exhibit moderator's uh, prerogative here and let you guys know that you guys have one minute to answer that very detailed question. And I will interject here just to make sure that we're, we're able to move things along a little bit. Um, but can I return, if that's okay, to do uh, Barbara, Juliet, and then Veshla on this question?
3: I will model being disciplined. Um, I, I think that uh, you know Nicole Hannah-Jones had a wonderful piece in, in New York Times Magazine last week about reparations, which I think made a very powerful case. I think that has to be um, on our agenda. I think those of us who do work in the academy um, have to understand our role in this moment too and in some ways betray our training <laughs> to work in isolation, to seek collaborations, to, to look at ways that we can lend the work that we do to larger audiences where it would be very, very well received and is very, very needed. Um, and we have to remember like in times of authoritarianism and dictatorships, it's also intellectual, you know, college campuses get closed down, academics get carted off, you know, we see in Turkey and in um, parts of Latin America, et cetera. Uh, so so to, to sort of understand our calling as scholars in this moment, I think is important, and to revisit the embrace and seriousness, the demand for reparations.
0: I'm going to ask you just to do, uh, uh, follow up a, a tiny bit here. Um, there was there was a phrase that you mentioned in another webinar that you were in that like has stayed with me um, and that I think is really valuable in this moment for a lot of us in the academy. Um, and you used the phrase, insurgent intellectual work. Um, I think. And, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what you mean by
3: the, that term insurgent intellectual work. Right. Well, I mean, I think we do that on a continuum, right? That is that we we resist what our disciplines tell us is important to study. We, re, we resist even the epistemology, you know, just hearing Bessler read from, uh, from that oral history, like we are not the only reservoirs of knowledge. There are other reservoirs of knowledge. I mean, things that my grandmother told me about how you know, rich people mess over poor people. I mean, you know, I mean, I read volumes that, you know, elaborated on that, but that wisdom uh, was still at the core of it. So so I think, you know, resisting and rebelling against the ways that we are literally trained and contained as thinkers um, and also to try to do our work in an accessible way, um, I think those violate the, you know, there's a controlling aspect. So we feel very free as academics, but there's an enormous controlling role that the academy plays Um, and I watch it, we all watch it, I think with graduate students who who come in with big ideas about where their work will land and then watch it shrink um, and, and watch them shrink. I should also make a plug for Scholars for Social Justice, It's an organization that myself and Kathy Cohen and Uh, Megan and many other uh, uh, people are involved in. We want other uh, colleagues to join us. It's outside of the academy, uh, but it's doing work in service to the movement. We're doing webinars and teach-ins and movement briefings and all that stuff. And we need all your brilliance. Right, Juliette?
1: I think one of the things that I think is important um, in this moment, um, and that would really make a difference is is absolutely, I think, um, thinking um, about reparations but I think also thinking about right um, investment in black life and black communities right thinking about what it would look like to not simply punish and um, incarcerate and you know um, and you know um, and and not employ but what would it look like to invest um, and I think this is something that goes beyond, simply of course black people but thinking about what it would look like to have a different relationship to the planet right so a lot of these crises have been shown to be connected right so the fact that it's mostly people of color working in meat packing plants that are do, that are getting infected from covid-19 that are being infected so that we can have this abundant meat supply in the you know first world um that relies on commercial agriculture agriculture like those kinds of things i think show that we need to think about um, the intersection of race and class, and we need to think about the intersection with the life of the planet, right? So who's been um, shown to be an essential worker are people who are generally not valued um, and whose work is generally not valued, certainly not in terms of pay or um, social prestige. And yet they're the people who are doing the essential work of care that is keeping us all, Um, alive. And so I think that 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 shifting, you know, to thinking about how we think about, you know, um, about the relationship between, you know, race, class, and the planet, and this idea of, of, right, who is essential, and who is, who is doing the work of care is absolutely um, central. And I'll just say one little other thing is that I absolutely agree with the point about, thinking about how our scholarship can be in collaboration with, um, with movements and with struggles for racial justice. And I've been involved in a project of the Anti-Racism Research and Action Network that you know did, um, we just came out with a volume that involved um, activists and intellectuals from seven countries in the Americas looking at black and indigenous movements who were trying to resist um, racist black backlash across the hemisphere and carve out visions, alternative visions for the future. And, you know, that work was enormously difficult, but it was also really rewarding um, because I think this is the other thing that's really key is thinking about alliances, right? How can we think about movements not in silos, but thinking about, you know, Black and Indigenous struggles as struggles that are related and struggles um, that are related to struggles against sexism, against homophobia, against all these other um, ways in which we are um, constraining um, you know, different forms of, of life.
2: I guess what I would say in my tiny minute that I have um, is that I'm a little bit worried that the radical adi- ideation that we're seeing in this moment um, not be bureaucratized and I can already see this happening mean some of the most ambitious um, uh, uh, ideas to reform the police in historically have always um, ended up growing the police and always ended up being stripped of their most radical potential community policing uh, you know even restorative justice you can see how foundations um, now we're going to take that concept and, and, and put resources into a very stripped down idea of what restorative justice is, right? Justice reinvestment, right, is a perfect case example. It was meant to starve the carceral system and then redirect those resources to building community centers and investing back in, in uh, race-class subjugated communities, and it didn't happen. Um, and so I guess my concern in this moment is how do you re- how, how do you get around that puzzle that Piven and Cloward um, showed for us way back when of movements becoming um, incorporated into normal organizational politics and imperatives? Um, how do you keep the radical vision of what um, the challenge to police power looks and is? Um, how do you keep that central and not have it be uh, bureaucratized and just to leave off i'm the person that is um today bringing lots of quotes to the conversation because i want to remind us that we've been here before um, and that this critique of police power has always been central to the black freedom struggle and the you know specifics of it may change um, but it, it has always been there. And this is just from, a, um, from the behind the veil narrative collection of um, an oral history collection of people who lived through Jim Crow during the 30s and 40s. And this person says, so what is jail for? It's to eliminate competition. These young militants, these young militants with guts enough and nerve enough to get up here and have a confrontation with police and with the public in general. We want to remove all these militants and make them docile, obedient, and to bring them back down to an attitude of subserviency. That's the game plan, right? That's a narration from history that is very much apt in, in our moment. And so I guess I'm very concerned that we don't repeat um, the failures of the past, repeat this all again in 20, 30 years when our children are, you know, again in the
0: streets. All right. So for our final question for the panelists, who is someone past or present that you have turned to over the last month to help, under, help you understand what is necessary to continue to push the movement forward? Um, and let's go Vesela, Juliet, Barbara. There's
2: so many people that have been so critical to and have been amplifying the problems with a racialized policing system for many, many years. Um, I guess I would go to uh, Malcolm X, who uh, long theorized um, what a police state looks like. Um, And I just came across this this morning. Um, He says, in areas of this country where the government has proven either its inability or its unwillingness to protect the lives and property of our people, then it's only fair to expect us to do whatever is necessary to protect ourselves. And in situations like Mississippi, where the government actually has proven its inability to protect us, and it has proven that oft times the police officers and sheriffs themselves are involved in the murder that takes place against our people, then I feel, and I say that anywhere, that our people should start doing what is necessary to protect ourselves. And that's exactly what's happening in this moment. I think the calls for police abolition recognize um, the failures of the past. It's why they're not calling for procedural reforms or police training or community policing or any other of the number of, of, of tweaks to the system that we've seen in the past. It's why they went directly to abolition and to defunding, um, because they recognize the state's inability to
1: protect. So one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is thinking about how we move struggles for racial justice forward without relying on always having to present the pain and suffering of Black people in order to try to um, produce some sort of transformation in in white political attitudes, right? So how do we, how do we get, um, solidarity without it relying on this constant loop of, of, you know, of of black pain and and black suffering. And and so I've been writing actually about Ida B. Wells, who I think is, is a really interesting person to think with in this moment, because, you know, she was writing at a, you know, a similar moment of, of racial terror, um, and wrote about police violence, about race riots, right, about the, you know, um, violence against anti-Black violence. But she did so in a way, I think, that is really interesting because she also paid attention to Black lives, right? She, she resisted, I think, the even as she shined a light on, on um, you know, on white violence, she resisted the idea, you know, the portrayal of black people only as victims or only as right, victims of violence. And instead, I think try to give an accounting of, of the lives that were, that were lost and that were impacted. And so I think of her as somebody who gives us a way of thinking about, you know, how do we balance that? How do we not simply fall into, um, you know, um, putting up black pain and suffering you know, for consumption or try to change, um, you know, racial attitudes and how do we present, you know, the complexity of black life, even as right, we're trying to engage in anti-racist struggle. And so she's somebody I've been thinking about a lot and who I think is, is really helpful in this moment.
3: Yeah. Um, thank you for that question too. Uh, you know, I, I've been thinking of Audrey Lord and Sylvia Winter and James Baldwin and working class intellectuals like General Baker and, and Grace Lee Boggs. Well, you know, Grace Lee Boggs was academically trained, but grounded herself in a different place. Those were people who were influential to my own sort of intellectual growth and politicization as a teenager in Detroit um, in the 1970s. Um, and, the, and the wisdom there is, I mean, going back to your question about dreaming, is about Um, you know, imagining and dreaming big. Uh, And so I think that defund the police and abolition is the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. It is a a demand that has radical potential, but but potential like so many demands of co-optation. And every movement that doesn't win gets institutionalized, right? You know, South Africa was so close to my heart for so many years. Um, And comrades in the African National Congress who you know, are now overseeing corporations that exploit workers had to say. Uh, so, so so it didn't win in the way that many of us had hoped it would win in terms of transitioning to a different uh, kind of political mechanism order. Um, so so I just, I think of those people, I think of their fortitude, I think of the call to imagine um, the, the, the need to have the sort of fortitude to fight the long fight. Um, and I'm, I am hopeful, so. Thank you both. Thank you all three for this conversation.
0: guess for me right now, I really just want to thank um, the panelists today, Professor Juliet Hooker, Professor Veshla Weaver, Professor Barbara Ransby, for allowing us to think, this time to think together um, through these important issues. and. I really want to express my appreciation for the panelists for giving so much of themselves. Um, this has been an extraordinary um, moment in which so much time is being asked um, of people, especially of Black women. Um, and I just really want to thank you for all of your research and all the help that you've done, given this present moment in helping us understand it.
3: Please
2: find us at raceandcapitalism.com You can also follow us on Twitter at
0: RaceCapitalism to find out more on what's happening with the project.